Today we are beginning a new series titled Preparing the Way, where we are essentially exploring the period of scripture that covers everything after Jesus' birth, but before he starts his ministry here on earth. So if you are someone who never wants the Christmas season to end, you're in luck because we're going to talk a little bit about um, Jesus' time on this earth as a baby and as a young boy and also his genealogy a little bit. The Gospels, they go into great detail describing Jesus' ministry on earth, beginning from his first miracle of turning water into wine, the first times that he calls his disciples and asks them to follow him in this new thing that he's doing. And it goes into great detail even describing his very first sermon, which has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. But while there's much um, in Scripture about Jesus' ministry on earth, there is little known about his early years and what his life was like leading up to the start of his ministry, what his upbringing was like, and basically the relationship that he developed, not just with his earthly parents, but also with his heavenly father as well, and everything that led to the preparation of his ministry. And so as we explore the beginning of Jesus' life on earth and the preparations that he went through to begin his ministry, we also are going to learn how to prepare ourselves as well for a new year of doing ministry together, for a new year of living out our faith and growing in our faith. And my hope is that throughout this series, we can find some connection and uh, grow as we see the humanity of Christ, maybe in a new way that you haven't before. But before we do that and jump in, let's go ahead and pray together. Lord God, I thank you for each and every person that is in this building right now. I thank you for bringing us all here safely, for creating a space where we can just worship you in abandonment and hear what you have to say to us. I pray, Lord, that as we begin this new year together, you would form just such great bonds in this community that anyone who has stepped into this building that um, does not yet have a friend at the table, church. We are trusting and believing that you're going to create those relationships. And we also are believing, Lord, and asking that you would develop our faith this year and that it would start today. It would start right now. You would um, just develop our relationship with you and call us to just a new, a new depth that we haven't entered before. And so I ask, Lord, as that begins today, that there would be no distractions that people would be able to just easily receive what it is that you want them to hear and that every person in this space would take away just one thing, just one pointed message that you want them to hear today, Lord. We love you and we honor you. In your name we pray, amen. So today we will be reading from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 21 to 39, and we're going to split it up into three different sections today as we learn a little bit about Jesus' familial roots, as well as the first two people who identified him as the Messiah on their own after the nativity story. And so we are picking up the story after Luke narrates the events surrounding Jesus' birth. Every Christmas, we discuss the nativity and the story of God sending his love down to earth through the person of Jesus, someone who, of course, was fully human but also fully God. And essentially, as we jump into Luke, we're going to be looking at the part two of this story, something that we don't do too often um, as a church. Like I said earlier, we tend to focus on Jesus's ministry and his adult years and everything that he did. 
But we are going to be looking at this part two of the story of when love came down to earth and started to live among us. And so if you would, please turn in your Bibles or in your smartphones to Luke chapter 2, verse 21 to 24. The text will also be on the screen for you to follow along. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So the first thing that we learn about Jesus after his birth story is that he would fully participate in the human traditions of the Jewish people. And while this may not seem like too much of a big deal to us today, we may not be able to see the significance of it today since we're not practicing those traditions, to the Jewish people, this was incredibly important because it highlights the continuity of Jesus' story with that of Israel's story, God's chosen people. But not only would Jesus fully participate in Jewish culture, he would fully participate in human life on earth. And so what are some things that we know about the life that Jesus led? Well, we know that he grew up in the town called Nazareth, which was a small village near Sepphoris, which was one of the two major cities in Galilee. And this is where Jesus would eventually bring his ministry as an adult as well and call his first followers. We also know that his father, Joseph, was a carpenter and that Jesus likely also took up this, um, this profession. And this also shows us that he was born into a family of humble means, which is interesting because we call him our king, right? We identify Jesus as a king, even though he did not inherit an earthly kingdom of monetary wealth or a kingdom that we might uh, recognize today. And this is why we shouldn't really be surprised when Jesus chooses to minister to people who are poor, to the widow, to the oppressed, to the vulnerable. Some other things we know about Jesus is that he had siblings. Mary and Joseph, they had other children. And as we read earlier, we can assume that they raised their family in traditional Jewish culture. Luke chapter 2, it assures the readers that Jesus, the primary thing about him is he was born into a faith family. And so while he was the son of God, he also had a traditional and seemingly normal childhood for that time and culture that he was born into. So what we see in this first chunk of text here is that after the birth of a child, Jewish families, they would follow instructions from what we call uh, the Old Testament. That's the modern name that we have given to the laws that the Jewish people were following at that time. And so we see three things. The first is the practice of circumcision. This is a historic practice for Jewish people taught in the book of Leviticus. And it symbolized the Jews' separation from the Gentiles. It was a way of saying that we are separated and we are considered by God to be his holy people. The other thing that we see is there is this period of time set aside for the purification of the mother after childbirth, where after 40 days of giving birth to a son, the mother would come to the temple with a sacrifice and a priest would deem her ceremonially clean. And then the third thing that we see here is that there is a presentation of the firstborn son, where the child is presented to God in the temple alongside an offering that the parents bring. 
And the parents are basically acknowledging in this space that the child is not theirs, but the child is God's. Old Testament law, it instructs parents to sacrifice a lamb in this process. And so it is interesting and just another way that we can see how Jesus was born into a family of humble means by the fact that they didn't sacrifice a lamb. They couldn't afford it. Instead, they sacrificed two birds, as scripture tells us. Now, all of this, it is an important part of Jesus's life because it shows us that Jesus was not born above the law. The law that had been practiced for years and years and years by the Jewish people, but it shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. It is the beginning of this fulfillment that we will then see throughout the Gospels. In Matthew 5, verse 17, later in Jesus' adult ministry, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Often we tend to discount the teachings of the Old Testament. In fact, there are even some modern-day theologians that believe that Old Testament teachings, they just don't have influence on our faith anymore after the birth of Jesus. But this is simply not true when you look at them through the lens of Christ and when you compare them to the teachings that we see from Jesus in the gospel. Jesus practiced the laws of Moses and they influenced the teaching that we have today and the teaching that Jesus provided. Now, the legalism of the laws of Moses, that may have come to an end, especially when we look at the ceremonial and civil laws that we are not practicing today. They stayed in that time, in that culture. But the same concepts of holy living are foundational to Jesus' teaching that we are called to practice today. And I have three examples I want to share with you. Some of you are going to think this is really boring, but I find it fascinating to compare the Old Testament to the New Testament. So if you are in that court... There are three really cool things, just examples of this. First, the laws of Moses. They teach people to not have any other gods besides the one true God. Jesus teaches us to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It is the same concept, but Jesus takes the commandment and teaches it through the lens of having authentic love for God as a reason to only follow him. Mosaic law also states, thou shalt not kill. Now, I don't recall Jesus ever saying, don't kill your neighbor. But what he did say is, love your neighbor as yourself. He's saying the same thing here to make sure that you are putting your neighbor above yourself. Another example, just a third one for you, Mosaic Law teaches to keep the Sabbath holy, to give it back to God. And Jesus says, similarly, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Finding balance between work and rest that honors God, they're found in both Jesus' teaching and the Mosaic Law. Now, all of this is important because it shows that righteousness was not about following a rule for the sake of obeying it, but drawing out the internal desire to honor God fully with your life. And not only was Jesus the fulfillment of the law, but we learn in scripture that he was also the fulfillment of Israel's hopes and petitions to God over the years. He was the fulfillment of everything that they had been waiting for and praying for. Messiah to come was a man named Simeon, whose story we're going to see next in verse 25 through 35. And I want to encourage you as we read through this to just count how many times the spirit of God is mentioned. It'll give you a little clue as to where we're going next. So verse 25 reads, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. 
It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Holy Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him, and then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There, of course, Simeon is referencing the pain that Mary would experience when Jesus is eventually crucified. As you read this passage, though, you have to imagine the pure excitement and joy exhibited by Simeon, this incredibly old man who has waited every day to meet the promised Messiah is led by the Holy Spirit to go to the temple courts. And when he gets there, he sees Jesus. He picks up the baby in his arms and knows that everything that he has been waiting for, the consolation of Israel, has been revealed directly to him. Talk about having an abundance of patience and waiting for the Lord. And he sings praises to God and he thanks him for the gift that he had just received, the opportunity to see salvation with his own eyes. A salvation that would not just be for the Jews, but verse 32, it tells us it would be a light for revelation to the Gentiles as well. See, the Jews, they knew the Old Testament prophecies like the back of their hand, especially the ones that spoke about how Israel would be redeemed in the future. They knew a Messiah would be coming to bless and redeem their nation, but Simeon reminds them that Jesus did not just come to redeem his own people, but all people, all of us. Isaiah 49.6, an Old Testament prophecy says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you ends of the earth. And Luke, our author, he was quick to document this prophecy coming to fruition and ensure that not just the Jews, but his Greek-speaking audience as well would know that all who believed could experience the life-saving love that this baby would bring. And even as a baby, Simeon knows and he speaks of this truth and he foreshadows what is to come when all of creation would be redeemed by Christ. Through Simeon, the faith of this man who held on to the hope that he would one day see the Messiah face to face, we also have the chance to see God at work here. Because it is through the power of the Holy Spirit moving in Simeon's life and orchestrating this event that we see God taking the initiative to bring his redemptive purpose to fruition. The Holy Spirit was mentioned three times in those first three verses and credited for everything that Simeon is experiencing. And this causes not just Simeon to offer him praise, but it gives us an opportunity to praise God as well for the power of the Holy Spirit available to us in our lives. See, for Simeon, there was no higher honor. There was nothing else he desired in life than to meet the Messiah. He even says, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. Essentially, he's saying, 
I can die happy, experience, hold, touch. I have seen the Messiah, and that is better than anything else I could possibly experience in this world. Simeon's story, it really puts things in perspective for me and probably for you as well, especially as we come out of a holiday season, a time of giving and receiving gifts, and as we enter a new year and a period where we set goals for ourselves and we set intentions for the future. We place so much stock in accomplishing the earthly intentions and goals that we have created for ourselves. You know, I, I want to work out more, or I want to pay off my debt, or I want to get more rest, I want to take more time off. I'm going to get eight hours of sleep most nights this year. I want to learn a new hobby. All good things, nothing, nothing to avoid, right? But at the top of our list, the priority going into this new year should be to more intimately develop an enduring relationship with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we see from Simeon that he not only received salvation from his relationship with God, that's just step one, but then he experienced a peace and a joy that was like no other. And this is not something that we can attain, but for us, Jesus has already come. That peace, it's already available to each of us. Walking into this new year, if you have told yourself that you want to be less stressed, less anxious, that you want to practice better self-care, that you want to focus on your happiness, that you want to simplify your life, that you want to find peace, those are all wonderful goals. But there is a good chance that this new year is going to be just as challenging as 2019 was. I hate to be the downer, but a new year does not mean that all of your problems will go away and you have the capabilities to grant yourself that peace, that peace that we're all craving. And every challenge that you face and roadblock that you hit, it's going to pull you away from those earthly endeavors to create peace by yourself. Eight hours of sleep, doing more yoga, practicing bullet journaling, those are all good habits. But the truth is that if we try to manufacture peace on our own without the presence of God, without the guidance of the Holy Spirit, then that peace is going to be nothing but fleeting and circumstantial. Peace that endures will not come from a resolution. It will, not come from in, it will come from investing in a relationship with the Holy Spirit like Simeon did and waiting patiently to see the fruits of that relationship with the Spirit. Paul teaches us that the fruit of the Holy Spirit are the exact same things that I bet many of you may have resolved to have in this new year, me included. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of investing in your relationship with the Spirit of God is love. It is joy. It is happiness. It is that peace that we are craving. A peace that, according to Simeon, is greater than anything else he could have received on his own and is greater than anything else that he wanted to live his life for. But those fruits are only made possible and accessible to us when we take the time, like Simeon, to know the Spirit of God to commune with the Spirit of God, something 
we were made to do when God created us in his image. Finally, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus' time at the temple, it comes to a close with one more interaction with a prophet named Anna. We're at verse 36 through 39. It reads, There was also a prophet Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. So the prophetess Anna, to me, she is the best example of steadfast faith that I can think of today. Anna is an elderly woman deserving of so much honor. She's called a prophet or a prophetess is the feminine version, a title that frankly outweighs any title that Luke may have given to Simeon earlier. Anna is one of the very few female prophets in the New Testament, and more than this, Luke is sure to give us her father's name as well as the tribe of Israel that she came from. Now, this is not a common practice, for characters that we see in the New Testament, but our author Luke wants to make sure that we know this woman's credentials, that we know she is to be trusted, that we know she is to be honored, and that we are supposed to listen to the words that she is saying. You have to wonder, though, how did Anna know who this baby was? This practice that Mary and Joseph were doing, it's, it's similar to um, when churches do baby dedications or baptisms, right? There was nothing that separated Jesus in her eyes from that of any other baby. He was not wearing like a light-up neon sign that said, I am the Messiah you've been waiting for, right? He didn't have this halo or this glow around him. Scripture tells us that Jesus was ordinary, there was nothing special about his appearance. So how did she know it was God? How did she know to proclaim to others that this baby was the redemption of Jerusalem? We question that about ourselves too, though. How do I know if this is God or if this is my subconscious or just a coincidence happening, playing out in front of my life? How do we know and discern God's plan for the future? And if we have discerned it, what confidence can we have in knowing that we're actually following God's next steps for our life? I think in one way or another, we have all struggled with this. We have all struggled to identify God at work in our lives. Sometimes to the point where we are petitioning God to speak. We are asking him to show us our next steps, to guide our path, to answer our questions, to give us some clarity into the future that he has planned for us. I'm like Anna did, to fast and pray and worship the Lord in the temple. Scripture says about Anna that she never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. But us... Often we haven't been consistent in coming before the Lord. We can't hear God or recognize him moving in our life or directing our path because we haven't taken the time to get to know him. 
Praying to God and asking him to grant our requests is not the same as getting to know the character of God and knowing and recognizing how he is moving in his life, in our life. Sure, many of us know salvation, right? We believe that Christ came to redeem us from our sins. And that is incredibly important, but there is so much more for us to grasp. Why have we stopped there? We can't recognize him. And often there is very little intimacy in our relationship with God. If the Messiah were to show up in our church today, like he did in Anna's temple, you have to ask yourself if you could identify him. If you were to walk right in here at five o'clock, would we be able to recognize him? Because he doesn't, I think I have a picture, he doesn't look like that, that we've been taught to believe. There's very low chance that he was that white. (laughs) and that blonde and had that blue of eyes. So if that is what you're banking on when you're trying to recognize God in your life, it's not going to work for you. I'm sorry to say I wish it was that easy. But Psalm 105 verse 4, it gives us a little little hint on how we can go about doing this. It says, seek the Lord in his strength and seek his presence continually. The Hebrew word here for presence, it actually translates to the face of God. Seek the face of God continually. We must seek to know the face of God if we're going to be able to identify him, seeking his presence continually and meeting with him as if we were meeting with him face to face. And this is what Anna did. She knew the Lord. Anna was an 84-year-old woman who spent her days fasting and praying and worshiping in the temple And after those 84 years of life, she could fully recognize God when he was right in front of her. But like any relationship, this happens through time. It happens through commitment. It happens through dedication. It is the same with our relationships here on earth. You would not go on a blind date and then a day later confess your love and be ready to get married. This is why shows like 30 Day Fiance and... They don't work. They have such a low success rate because they haven't had time to develop their intimacy with the person that they're supposed to be so close with. You have to take the time to develop a relationship before you're going to be able to benefit from it. Anna knew the baby before her was the Messiah because she knew God. She had continually sought the presence of God as if she was seeing him face to face throughout her life. She identified Jesus as the Messiah because she had come to know the true identity of God. And so when we combine these these three pieces of the story that we've discussed tonight, we have a pretty good plan for how we might go about preparing the way for God to work in and through our lives this year. And I would encourage you to try to take just one of these main ideas into your week, into your month, maybe into the rest of this year. First, remember remember Jesus' presentation at the temple. Sure, it is a historic ceremony that we don't have today, and it is hard to relate to that, but his involvement in Jewish traditions and cultures can give us some comfort in knowing that up until his ministry began, he lived a traditional life on this earth, which means that he knows and has experienced the troubles that you are facing as you go into this year. 
He knows what exhaustion feels like. He knows what loneliness feels like. He knows what sadness feels like. Jesus has lived his life on this earth. Second, better than any New Year's resolution, is experiencing the peace and joy offered only by the Holy Spirit, something so valuable that Simeon was willing to wait his entire life for it. And once he had it, there was nothing more impressive in this world. And that peace offered by God, it is everlasting and it is strong enough to hold you up through whatever this year might have in store for you. It's not a peace that you're going to find at the yoga studio or in your new relationship or in your 2020 calendar or in your finances. You will only find it by communing with God and allowing the Holy Spirit to influence your life. And then finally, third, take the time to know God intimately this year. Do not let another year go by believing that the only thing you can get from God is salvation. Meet him in song, meet him in prayer, meet him in praise, and meet him in fasting just like Anna did. Resolve to grow your relationship with God like you would grow your relationship with a family member or a spouse or a child. And the beautiful thing about this season that we're entering into together is you don't have to do it by yourself. As we go into 21 days of prayer, you have the opportunity to develop that intimacy each day with a whole church of people that are doing the exact same thing, cheering you on, developing that intimacy alongside you. And so right now, I just want to take a minute to pray for these three things as we step into this new year together. And I'm also going to go ahead and pray for us through the very first prompt of 21 days of prayer. And then in a little bit after communion, like I said, Meg's going to come forward and she's going to, she's going to pray for the world as we enter into this new season together. So let's go ahead and pray. Lord God, we praise you for the person that you are. And we are so grateful for the love that you offered us. We are so grateful that you came to this world to live among us. We praise you for being kind and for being merciful and for walking alongside us each day. And we thank you for the opportunity and the ability to connect with you in prayer, to connect with your spirit. This space and go into the rest of this year and what you're going to do in and through this community as well. Lord, I pray for everyone in this space, Lord, that right now they would just walk away with one of three things that they first would find comfort in knowing that whatever battles they are facing as they go into this year, whatever challenges might be in store, that you have already come and experienced them. You have already come and lived among us and lived among this world and you know, you know the challenges they are facing. We are not in this alone. Lord, I also pray for folks who just want to experience some peace this year. Maybe 2019 was really, really challenging and folks have thought of a whole host of ways that they can create opportunities to seek peace throughout this year, to rest and be restored. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them that they're not in this alone, but that by communing with your Holy Spirit, they, they would receive a peace 
that is greater than they can possibly imagine or manufacture on their own, Lord. And finally, God, I pray that you would just ignite a fire in all of us to get to know you more deeply this year, that we would not stop at just coming to church on Sundays, that we would not stop at just coming to small group, but that we would intimately come to know the face of you, that we would come to know and be in your presence so regularly that when you move and work in our life, we would see it and we would recognize it and we would glorify you for how you are moving, Lord. And I pray, God, that as we do this as a community, that we would speak of those things, that we would cheer each other on and that you would just give us such great encouragement as we go into this year, Lord, in knowing that you've already come before us and you will be with us every step of the way. In your name we pray. Amen.